God, I thank you for your word. I pray that as we look at it today, that you would give us insight. I pray that you would be my strength. I pray you'd be glorified. I pray that we would all worship you in the way that we receive and respond to your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open up to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. This morning, we're going to look at a message entitled, The Truly Happy Person. The Truly Happy Person. Let's read Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like shaft that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The truly happy person. Uh, when we look at Psalm chapter one, we're looking at a description of the way God intends for us to live, the way God calls us to walk. There's a great warning in this passage implied. There's great wisdom in this passage. And, and what we're going to do today is we're going to look at it ultimately, three characteristics of this truly happy person. Happy not in the ways of the world, but happy in the eyes of God. Truly spiritually satisfied. Happy not in the way that we think of. I, I was looking at this and... The first thing that uh, hits me when I've studied this passage in the past is how can this be? Because if you have any type of like a uh, picture of man, and what I mean by that is, is like, uh, it's what theologians would call anthropology, uh, the study of man, who is man. And when you study man in the Bible, if you were going to just start noticing everything you could come up with in a study of uh, the nature of man, you wouldn't come up with positive qualities, you'd come up with really a, a tragedy. You'd come up with man is sinful. Man is an enemy of God. You could put it into terms that man has created treason against a holy God. Man is uh, unrighteous. There's no righteous, no, not one. I mean, on and on and on, you know, th there's this nature of mankind that is so hard to realize. And so how in the world can we now be talking about two different type of people? Well, we've got the blessed man and we've got the, the wicked man. You're sort of like left with this idea of how can the wicked ever get into a place of being blessed? I think that's a normal question that we have to look deeper into the scripture on. And, and the plight of man is seen in passages like Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And, and, and you could rightfully ask the question, how can that description enable a man to be blessed? Where you could write a psalm about how blessed is the man. You could look at a passage like Isaiah 64 and really feel the weight of it. We have all become like one who is unclean and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And so there would be a normal question if you were looking at different passages to say, wait a minute, the last thing I read in Isaiah 64 is not a picture of stability. It's a picture of just being tossed to and fro. How can I get to a place of being blessed and stable and fruitful? I think, again, that would be a normal question. Uh, And looking at this, though, it gets exciting because you start to see, okay, what is happening here? How do we get here? John Stott says in relation to this passage, he says, this man's delight is an indication of the new birth for the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. One commentary says, by contrast, the blessed man has been redeemed from the whole structure of this fallen world with its egocentricity, its lies, its moral failure, and ultimately its satanic seduction. He indeed is on his way to happiness. I remember years ago, I won't tell which one. I try to, uh, I grew up in a day when, uh, as a preacher's kid, my dad used me as sermon illustrations weekly, and I would hide. And I remember Woodland Park was a church that was really growing, and there's a lot of services. And it was a nightmare for me as a kid when I went to a service my dad thought I wasn't in because he would be more descriptive about his illustrations. And I'd be in the back going, Dad, I'm going to kill you. What are you doing? I'm back here, and everyone's turning around looking at me. So I won't name the kid out, but when one of my children were little, I was, uh, it's probably been 10 years ago. That automatically eliminates two. <laughs> the, uh, and, and we were out, and, and Ann was doing something, and I was sort of like, I was in charge of the kids all day. And, man, it was like super dad day. I did everything for them. I mean, we got ice cream. We ate bad all day long. We started out at McDonald's. We might have ended at McDonald's. It was an amazing day. And, uh, and I mean, we did everything. We went to the park. We played. We, uh, we got ice cream or, or at least candy. And at one point, one of them said in the back, they said, can we have ice cream? And that was sort of like the breaking point for me. We had eaten so poorly that I just had to say, you know what? We, we can't get ice cream. I mean, again, keep it in mind, we had done it all. We had gotten up playing. We watched movies. We went to the park. We, we did it all. And at that point, one of their reactions coming from the back said, this is the worst day ever. <laughs> you see, they had a worldly view of happiness. And, and I didn't know this until several years ago, but that word happiness, it comes from a Latin word. And that may really thrill you, but it's fascinating. Most of our words come from Latin words. But the Latin word is hap, H-A-P. And hap means circumstance. So if you think about it, in a worldly standpoint, when are you typically happy? You're typically happy when your team wins. You're happy when the weather's nice. You're happy on vacation. You're happy when you get a good meal. 
but, but your happiness seems to be in relationship to your circumstances, right? And so when the weather's bad or your team loses or you're just having some bad circumstances, you lose your happiness and now you're upset, depressed, sad, whatever. But, but here, this is a divine happiness. This isn't like the world. This is speaking about the truly satisfied person, delighted in God, spiritually delighted with who God is and the blessings that he gives. And this is what this is all about. And when we look at the word blessing in the book of Psalms, we see so many different types of blessings. We, we see how blessed is the man in verse 1 of chapter 1. Look at Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 40, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Psalm 112, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. But there's something unique about Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32, if we know our Bible and even if we don't know our Bible, if we look at a good study Bible and see the references that are cross-referenced, we see a connection between the psalmist and the Apostle Paul. And you say, how is that? Well, in Psalm 32, we're going to read a passage that Paul later quotes from out of Romans chapter 4. It's Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then he says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And that's exactly what we heard Scott read this morning. Paul, as he explains the good news of the gospel, he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And that's the reality. And, and if you think about it, the man who trusts in God's provision, who looks to Jesus, experiences a different position before God. He goes from being in judgment to one who is in a place of blessing and forgiveness. So I really believe that the, the ultimate blessing is, is Psalm 32, 1 and 2. The ultimate blessing. And what you find here is, is that, think of this. In order to experience the blessed life, you have to experience the blessed position in Christ. This is not just a how-to to how to be happy. This is pointing us to a greater reality. It's pointing us to the hope of the gospel, that those who find grace and mercy and forgiveness in Christ Jesus, the substitute, they experience blessing. They're blessed at the core of their being, and they and only them are in a place to live out of that blessing daily, to live blessed day by day by day by day. And this is what he describes here. So as we look at these characteristics, keep in mind the totality of the gospel, the first characteristic of the man described in Psalm 1, we see his delight, his delight. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute, his delight is not seen until verse 2. And I would agree with that, but I want you to look a little closer here. 
what we're looking at in Psalm chapter one is, is this six verse contrast between the blessed man and the wicked man. As we'll see later on, it's, it's similar to what happens in Proverbs when, the, when we see these two ways, we're at a crossroads. Which way are you gonna go? Wisdom is calling out on one side. The ways of fools is calling out on the other side. You're at a crossroad. Where are you going to go? How, I, I can't tell you how many times. I don't know how to explain it correctly, but in Atlanta, there's this one place on 85 when you're going to the airport, and if you got to spend the night before you catch your flight the next day, if you're going overseas or something, and you got to stay, I always miss it, always. And I'm at a crossroads, and you got this really tricky place. It's like they got a bunch of kids in vacation Bible school to design the interstate right there in Atlanta. And it makes no sense at all. And you immediately are at this place where you've got to choose whether to continue on 85 or to take this access road thingy. And I always miss it. And every time I'm like, I've done it a hundred times before this way, and I always miss it. But here, it's not that quick. It's almost as if you're standing there looking at the two ways. Will you listen to God or will you listen to the ways of the world? And that's what's put out here. And when we read this contrast, look at how he develops it. He starts out in verse 1 giving the negative of what this man turns away from. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. I really believe that while the psalmist presents it inspired by the Spirit to understand it, we have to see what's behind his direction. We have to understand what's behind his decision-making. We have to understand what is it that drives the decisions of this man's life? Is it simply that he made right decisions or is there something behind the decisions that points to the grace and the power and the enablement of God working in his life? And that's why we start with the delight. I really believe in another way of putting this would be the foundation of his life, his delight. What is the foundation of his life? And if we go to verse two, I think it explains verse one. In verse two, he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's unique for the Christian. You could be here today and you're thinking, you know what, you're talking about as you read delighting in the word of God, and you may be sitting there going, I've not been in the word of God lately at all, and I'm really not delighting in it. I want to encourage you. If you're a believer, you have the capacity to delight in the word of God. And you say, why is that? Well, th there's a couple of realities that we have to know theologically. One, we were brought forth from the word of God as believers. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And not only were we brought forth from it, listen to this, it goes a little further in the following verses in James 1. It's implanted within us by the Holy Spirit. We read in verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the what? Implanted word, which is able to save your souls. We have the capacity by God's grace to delight in that which he has put within us. Again, I read you a quote by Stott earlier, but I want you to think about it more now that we're looking at James, I mean, Psalm 1-2. This delight is an indication of the new birth for the sinful mind is hostile to God. You, you can't it's not possible for an unregenerate man or woman, boy or girl, to delight in the things of God. The spiritual is appraised by those who have received the spirit, but those who are not in Christ do not have the capacity to appraise spiritual things. So, so we look at this and it's really remarkable. His delight the truly happy man. If you think about it, it, that's really what we do in life, whether we acknowledge it or not. We look for things that make us happy. We look for things that bring us joy. We, we spend our time in pursuits because ultimately we're looking and longing for something. And here's the question. Will we listen to how God prescribes how this works? Or will we take it on ourselves to pursue the other way? I, I think about Solomon and the book of Ecclesiastes when he basically put it within his heart to not deny himself of anything in his pursuit for happiness. He went for every possible place whether it was vineyards or palaces or whatever it might be, he longed to find meaning. And we find at the very end of the book, he says, to sum it all up, fear God and keep his commandments. It's like, there's no other way. There's no other way to live. So when we think about this reality, the question I've got for you is, is what do you delight in? What do you delight in? What do I delight in? Now, now I didn't, I've never known this. I, I've preached out of this passage before, but lately, every time I've preached out of Psalm 1, I've restudied it and really not gone after the, the, the previous outline. And here I did it different as well. But one of the things I learned from Stephen Cole, a preacher out in Arizona, is that this word in the Hebrew, delight, is used of a man delighting in a woman. And isn't that interesting? Genesis 34, 19 is an example. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. I know all the guys in the room can relate to this. I don't know, ladies, how this would work for y'all. I don't pretend to know. But how many of y'all can relate, guys, when you're about 17, 18, and you got your boys and you got your group you hang out with. And all of a sudden, one of the guys in the group just radically messes it up. Like, where's Doug? And you got three or four of us hanging out. Where's Doug? 
He's with Holly tonight. What? Why? Why is he with Holly? Why is he with her again? Who does he think he is? Who does she think she is, right? She's messing it up. What do you mean? What happens? His priorities are rearranged because he delights in this young lady. And all of a sudden, he has time for what he delights in. We can all relate to that. Now, I want you to think about something. It, it, it takes it, and, and I learned this from Stephen Cole, but he's right on the money. It, he says here, do you delight in God's word? Do you make time to spend in the word because you delight in it? Or has it become a duty? It's easy to fall into the duty mentality towards the word. A chapter a day keeps the devil away. It alleviates your guilt to read it. You grind through a chapter, check it off your list, but you didn't commune with the living God or apply his word where you need to change. I think immediately it gives us a chance to, to pray through this. And, and, and there's hope in this because the one who brings us into a blessed state, the one who brings us into fellowship with God through his sacrifice is the one who enables us to follow the commands in the heart of God. So maybe immediately you're thinking, wait a minute, I don't love the things of God right now. There's a time in my life I can look at and point to that I had greater delight in the things of God. And I want to encourage you, and I want to encourage us all to say, oh, dear God, would you compel my heart to believe what your word says here? And would you give me a longing for the things of your truth? Would you do that with me? Would you pray that? Would you actively say, God, would you, and I'll tell you something I've learned and I'm learning in my life. I've gone through seasons where I long for the word of God. And I've gone through seasons where it became a duty to be in the word of God. But what I've learned and I'm slowly learning as I age and I get older and walking with Christ is that it's amazing as I run to the word, even when I don't feel compelled to run to it, I find that as I stay in it, what happens is God brings a delight behind it. God brings delight to it. So I wanna encourage you this morning. You see, he's saying here, look, the key to true spiritual satisfaction, to true spiritual happiness is Longing and delighting and meditating on the word of God. The world says that's not the key to happiness. Far from it. Pursue materialism. Pursue pleasure. Pursue success. Whatever it may be. But, but there's something that I want you to see at this crossroad. At this crossroads, notice verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's the crossroads. There's two ways. There's two roads. The way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. I, I tell you, this is true of all of us, but I think sometimes if I talk to the younger people, the older people listen better. 
But think about it. Young people, you've got two options. The way of the wicked or the way of the righteous. There's not any other roads. It's not like, you know, interstate system in Houston where there's multiple, multiple, multiple interstates. No, there's two. There's the way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. And here the psalmist says, go the way of the righteous. It reminds you of Proverbs 4, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on, for they cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble, for they eat the bread of wickedness, drink the wine of violence. But notice, he, it, it, it's like wisdom is crying out and saying, please listen to me. You don't understand? I do. I can save you a lot of grief. You could spend all your life looking for everything you think you long for, but if you neglect the word of God, you'll never find what you're looking for. And here he says, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. And you can almost sense the one who goes the way of the fool says, but you don't understand. There's so much excitement, so much pleasure, so much all that I long for. I want to live a little bit before I go down the right way. And he, he says, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And then the plea, my son, be attentive to my words Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. And look what Proverbs 4.22 says, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. When we read about this delight in the law of the Lord, this delight, the law of the Lord could be interpreted the instruction of the Lord. You could make it broader than just the law of the first five books of the Bible that we call the Torah, the law, the Pentateuch. You could go further than that. It's, it's God's revealed word. It's God's instruction. His delight is in the instruction of the Lord. And on that instruction and on that law, he meditates day and night. Listen to some of these verses that are similar. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Psalm 112, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Psalm 119, again, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. And here, Psalm 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I was watching. Meditation brings up a lot of different connotations in people's mind, doesn't it? I remember years ago, I was with a, one of my buddies, and him and his, his family went on a trip to California. I was 18, and we went around. We saw UCLA, Stanford, uh, USC, we went to Cal Berkeley. And at Cal Berkeley, that was some strange place right there. And I remember there was people meditating on campus. It was a little odd. And, and, and they were sitting in a circle and like holding hands and it was strange. 
a lot of people think of meditation and they think about like the playoff when J.J. McCarthy went out and sat down in the end zone on the goalpost and sat down and was just sort of like zoned out. That's, that's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is this connotation of it's not eliminating thought, as one scholar says, but redirecting thought to the word of God. It literally in the Hebrew means to utter sounds, to speak. It means to remember, to call to mind, to consider, to ponder. It says in Psalm 143, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. Uh, Cole says meditation includes audible, actually another guy says audible recitation. It, it, he, Cole says we are responsible not only to delight in God's word, but to meditate on it. It means it's to reading, it, meditation is to reading what digestion is to eating, chewing on it, letting it become part of you. We're to be doing it continually which implies knowing the word well enough to think about it all day long. We lived in Ottawa, outside of Chattanooga for a while. And right behind us, uh, there was a pasture land of like a, the neighbor owned a lot of land back there. And there was cows. And those cows were humorous, you know. I'd pull up sometimes and my dad would be talking to the cows. It was bizarre. And uh we got to laugh about it. I was like, Dad's talking to the cows again. And he'd start laughing because, yeah, I'm mooing at the cows. I, I would have a driving range at the cows or my golf clubs. And um, the cows are amazing. And, and they have, I think if I'm right, and you can correct me later if I'm wrong, seven stomachs. Is that right? It's not if I'm wrong. The, um, and, and, they, and they chew. They chew on a cud and, and they chew a while. And this is really going to help you for lunch but they chew on it a while, and what do they do? They spit it up, and they keep chewing. That's pretty gross. And, 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 and they, they chew, and they spit it up, they chew, they spit it up, they chew, they spit it up. I want you to think of something. This is a picture of, like, this individual who recognizes their own brokenness and how fragile they are, and they come to the Word of God and they really believe that the word has answers of life. Yet they know how their heart can wonder and how their heart can stumble. And they come to the word and they literally voice it. They talk it out. And it's a longing for the word to impact their heart. Have you ever been overwhelmed with anxiety or worry or struggle and you're coming to the word of God and you're believing and you're reading the promises of God and you're reading the commandments of God as it relates to anxiety or worry? And, and as you read it, you, you, you're voicing to God, oh God, I, I need help. Oh God, I need help to believe your promises Oh, God, let it be real in my heart and in my life. It, you, you begin to look at it not just as a devotional checkbox, but it's an intimate fellowship with Christ through his word in which you are desperate for it to become a part of you. And here's what begins to happen. And anyone in the room that's walked with God for, for more than a few years can tell you this is true. It's something unbelievable, mysterious, yet it's affirmed here. 
as you get into God's word and as it gets into you, you can't explain it to other people, but as you begin to go through the difficulties and the roads of life, the spirit brings that word to the surface within your heart. If you're not in the word of God, you've lost sight of that experience. But can you relate with me? Where all of a sudden you're in God's word, the spirit is breaking your heart to be humble towards it. And even in your own realization of how often you lose delight in it, you're praying that God would lead you to that place of delight. And as you read and as you pray and as you reflect in a way that is mysterious to your own heart, God faithfully brings it up within the course of your life. And as you go through situations, it's like mysteriously right on the front of your mind. It's becoming a part of you. It's becoming a part of your walk with Christ. And the psalmist here says, how blessed is the man. He delights in the law of God. He meditates on it day and night. And it's exactly the way that picture is of a cow chewing on a cud when it's necessary for God to bring it up to your recollection. The spirit is faithful to bring it up to your mind because the spirit grows as according to the word. But look at something here. Not only his delight, his direction. You see, how does his delight drive his direction? Now he lives differently. He says he walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You say, well, how would that affect him as it relates to decisions in his life? Well, remember the passage in Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You remember uh, the passage that is a wonderful passage for all young men and for all old men, but how can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? You come to the word of God. And, and, and God directs your life. As you meditate on it, now you're called to put it into action. It's the idea of you delight in it, you meditate on it, and now the, the journey with God continues because you're invited to put it into action. Put it into action. Don't just let it be devotional. Don't just let it be journal thoughts. Let it drive your obedience. And now this is the individual because the spirit is working within them that they move now, they reject worldly thinking. What does it say there? It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. You see three ideas here. They reject worldly thinking. They reject worldly living. They reject worldly speaking. It's, it, the word of God is driving the way that he looks at life. I'll tell you what's so exciting when you see this in all believers. But again, I go back to, to teens in the room. If you want to know how do I gain fuel to walk with God, pour your heart into his word. 
pour your heart into his word, the means by which God has designed you to grow, young Christian, is through the word of God. It's through the word. You get in the word, and as you pray, and as you read the word, and as you meditate on the word, you get in situations with people, and you've got to choose which congregation you're going to associate with. Did you notice there's two congregations in Psalm 1? There's the congregation of the evil and the congregation of the righteous. Are you going to go the way of the wicked? Are you going to associate with the congregation of the wicked? Because they'll be there. They'll always be there. Are you going to associate with the congregation of the righteous? And here what you find is, is that they reject the wisdom of the world. You remember 2 Chronicles, when we were looking at kings, we would go over to 2 Chronicles. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor in doing wickedly. It's tragic that his mom was the one who was advising him to do wickedness. But here's the reality. It's not just wicked moms that will counsel people to do wickedness. It's other wicked people. And the question you have to ask yourself is, am I submitted to the wisdom of God or am I submitted to the wisdom of the world? Everyone in here this morning is either living according to the counsel of the wicked directly or indirectly or toward the counsel of God. And, and, and here is an individual who's been changed by the word. The wisdom of the world is folly with God. Think about how the wisdom of the world has affected the church, the counsel of the wicked. You get into progressive Christianity where they completely compromise sexuality. And they say, hey, um, there's nothing wrong with uh, LGBTQ uh, advocacy within the church. We ought to be supporting that in every way. What is it? The wisdom of the world infiltrating the church. You see it with, with, with Christians that say, hey, you know what? Um, we might be more palatable to the world if we embrace theistic evolution. We might make it more palatable to the university folk if we speak of biologos and we speak about this scientific, robust scientific theology that incorporates evolution into our thought. What is it? Incorporating the wisdom of the world, bringing it to the church. You, you could do it with LGBT. You could do it with theistic evolution. But what is it? It's the wisdom of the world downplays the sufficiency of the word of God. And it says, you know what? I don't need this. It's not enough. A lot of people will say, well, what you need is not biblical counseling. You have to go somewhere where somebody's got, you know, PhD. They got to have this, this, this. They got to have all this stuff. And I'm not downplaying the significance and the appropriate place for such counseling. But what I'm saying is often when you hear that type of speak, it's an undermining of the sufficiency of the scripture. It's undermining the sufficiency of the word. And so what do you have here? You're going this route. You're living this life. The way of the wicked, the way of the righteous, the way of the world's wisdom, the way of God's wisdom. But the individual who is growing and who is experiencing spiritual happiness is chewing on the word of God, meditating on the word of God, and the spirit is leading their decisions in the way that they practically live. They're rejecting worldly thinking. But then it says they reject worldly living. They don't stand in the way of sinners. They don't want the lifestyle of the world. What's the lifestyle of the world? 
This fires me up. You know why? It's food for my soul. It's food for my soul. I tell you, it's, it's crazy because sometimes you don't get the backstory. You go through stuff in your life privately. You go through thought patterns. You go through all kinds of things. And sometimes when I'm studying to preach, what you don't see is the Holy Spirit is ministering to my heart as it relates to walking with God. And I get up here and I get excited and start yelling. But I'm not mad, I'm excited. He says uh, in 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. I tell you, um, students, if, if you're duped into this form of religiosity that's really weak and it just involves like going to a church once a week and it involves like this, this profession and it has nothing to do with walking with God, you're gonna be duped into this empty professionism, this, this nominal Christianity, this powerless. But God says, look, if you're gonna go down the way of the righteous, seek me with all your heart. Delight in the things of God. Meditate on the things of God. And what will happen is the grace of the spirit working through his word will lead you in practical areas, denying the way the world thinks and denying the way the world lives. And then he says, reject worldly speaking nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. There's this progression. Do you see it? You, you, you start by walking, then you're standing, and then you're sitting. You see these three progressions, even with the way he uses the Hebrew terms for sin, it appears. Scoffers. Scoffers that mock the things of God. Cole says, scoffers have rejected God and his word. They now seek to justify themselves by openly deriding that which they've rejected. They think they know more than God. They're too smart to believe in the Bible. Often they come from church backgrounds. They've cast it off as too repressive. They must always hide under an intellectual smokescreen. Invariably, scoffers have cast off the Bible because they want to be their own God so they can follow their own lust. They don't want God interfering in their sinful lifestyles. And I'll tell you something from my own experience, and I hate it that I had the experience because it's tragic, but when I've watched people even that were in the church turn into scoffers, it always leads to immorality. Always. When somebody begins to scoff at the word of God that once was around the things of God, watch out. You know what's happening? It's always usually connected to a moral bent. And they now are not just primarily having intellectual problems. They're having moral confrontations. And they want to reject the things of God to do whatever they want to do. He says something here that I thought was helpful. He says, First you walk, you're still moving, but now in the wrong direction. Then you stand, you're lingering in sin. Finally, you sit, you're at ease in the company of scoffers. First you're with the wicked, those who hang loose about God. Then you're with sinners, those who openly violate God's commands by missing the mark. Then you're with scoffers, those who openly reject the truth. First, you listen to counsel. You begin thinking wrong thoughts. Then you stand in the path. You engage in wrong behavior. Finally, you sit in the seat. You belong to the wrong crowd and have adopted the fatal attitude of the scoffer and Satan's got you. 
It's a progression, isn't it? I heard this growing up. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to stray. It'll keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. It'll cost you more than you ever dreamed you'd pay. There's this, this deceptive spiral. But then finally, not only his delight, his delight leads to his direction. But his delight also leads to his stability and his fruitfulness. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. he's, He's planted by a perpetual source of water. Again, it's mysterious because it's not something you just can see in in a picture or in a a moment. It's not a Polaroid and you go, ah, there it is. It's a process. It's a process through which the Spirit of God is working behind the scenes and is growing you as you walk with him. As you find your delight in the things of God, it's affecting your decision-making. But in the backdrop of even your decision-making is that God is making you fruitful. He's making you fruitful. It's like sometimes you can't see that. It's you know, when you're a kid, you, you don't always notice how you're changing. And then you go out and people are like, oh, my goodness, you've changed. You know, you remember that? It's fun having teenagers because you hear people do that. But I remember when I was a kid, I, I grew like six inches in one summer. I was skinnier than you could imagine. Uh, I, they used to say I look like a, I stick my tongue out, I look like a zipper. And, uh, and I was growing so fast. And they'd see me, and I was thinking, what is the big deal? And they're like, oh, my goodness, look at him. Look at him, Wayne and Diana. How has he gotten here? Isn't I would look at him like, what are you talking about? You've seen me every week. I'm Stephen. And what are they seeing? They're seeing something I'm not seeing. Isn't that the way it works spiritually? It's not always like you go, oh, look at me. I'm growing in the Lord. I wake up and go, wow, look at how I've grown. But as you follow God... As the Spirit works in His Word, the Spirit is working in you. And and, and you can't always see it on the surface, but as you go through the different seasons of life, God gives you soul prosperity through which you are displaying fruitfulness. Sometimes you see it in the hardest moments of life. Been around people that have gone through unspeakable tragedy. And in their tears, I'm looking in the face of someone who's showing unquestionable stability. People that are so wounded in their grief, they had no clue that as they trust God, they're demonstrating a quiet, spiritual grace of the soul that indicates that they are being sustained by deep perpetual source of nourishment that comes in a way that the world would never understand, but in their quiet yet earnest desire to follow God and meditate upon his word, God is sustaining them as they go through different seasons of life. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. I want you to think about it. Like you look at all these, you go, okay, you go, all right, we go, we're thinking about 2024 and how do I live? How do I, what are my pursuits? What are my concerns? Do, do we want to listen to the wise one of the universe, the almighty God tell us 
literally the secret truth of what it means to experience the greatest of happiness. Will we believe him? Will we pray according to his wisdom? He's firmly planted. When I go to Israel, I'd always see wadis. What, you know, they got these wadis that's in the desert and down in the bottom. There's one from Jericho as you look up towards Jerusalem. It's called the Wadi Kelt. And the Wadi Kelt, you see these, uh, it's desert everywhere, but you see these green trees at the bottom. You're like, wait a minute. Where do those green trees come from? Well, a wadi is an area in the wilderness that only gets periodic rain and they're dry the rest of the time. But here, this is even greater. The psalmist speaks of a tree planted by a constant source of water. So, so listen to this. He's nourished. He's been changed by God. God's word's implanted in his heart. And now as this man or woman yields to God and his word, meditating on the word, God is doing a work in them. And God is growing them, and they yield their fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Speaking, I believe, of a soul prosperity, that regardless of the season of life and the circumstances they face, they are sustained by a perpetual source of constant, continual supply of water. Cole says, it is solid and able to withstand drought or storms. It is fruitful and has continual evidence of life and vitality. Its leaves do not wither. He sums it up, and whatever he does, he prospers. There's a truly happy person, the person God blesses with his prosperity, no matter what circumstances of life he finds himself in. But look at the contrast. The contrast is key, and we'll close there. Verse 4. The wicked are not so. Now remember, it looked like party hardy at the beginning, didn't it? For the wicked point of view. They, they have their own counsel, their own wisdom. They have their own lifestyle. There's this congregation of mockers. But now at the end, what happens? They're like chaff that the wind drives away. And what is chaff? It's the worthless husk of grain removed by tossing the grain up into the air so that the wind separated the lighter husk from the heavier seed. Look at Isaiah. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. It reminds me of Ephesians 4, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. There's, there's, there's contrast after contrast after contrast. You've got the tree and the shaft. You've got these two allusions to standing. The righteous man in verse 1 doesn't stand in the path of sinners, and the ungodly in verse 4 does not stand in the judgment. You've got um, two congregations. Verse 4, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, but you got a congregation in this path of sinners and and all of these things happening in verse 1, 
And then you've got two ways that are contrasted there at the end. So this morning, let us be people of the word. Let us pray. I think, you know, uh, I would love to pray with you, say, oh God, would, would you break down my, my fleshly tendency at times to be deceived by the things of the world? And would you help me to see here the truth of what true spiritual joy and happiness, where it comes from? Would you help me to believe it? Would you... I tell you, I think what's sad, and I'm thankful that I'm around so many families in this church that I really believe see this, but what a way to pray for your kid. I mean, yeah, it's great if your kid gets a 32 on the ACT, 10 points better than I did. Um, but I'll tell you something, uh, there's a lot of accolades your kid could get, but if they get this wrong, it ends up in tragedy. I don't care what they accomplish on the field or the classroom or in the band. If they miss this, it's a disaster. What a way to pray for ourselves, to pray for our families, and to just remind ourselves that as we immerse ourselves into the word, we can pray Oh God, would you give me a greater and a greater and a greater hunger for the things of you? And oh God, would you take my often wayward heart and would you help me to be immersed and meditate and delight in your word that it might affect the way that I live in real time and that it would be a stability regardless of what life holds. Never know what a day holds. We don't know what our life holds. But we know who holds the future, and we know who holds the righteous and sustains them by his word. As we close, bow your head. I'm going to read to you a man that experienced this reality. And then we're going to pray. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And keeping them, there is great reward. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, the joy of uh, being with my brothers and sisters in this room. I thank you, God, for our guests today. Lord, I pray our lives would mirror this truth. I thank you, God, that your son, the Lord Jesus is the only one who ever fulfilled Psalm 1, 1 through 3 perfectly. And it's only by and through his grace that we might live this way. I pray that we would not be lazy Christians. I pray we wouldn't use your grace as an excuse for laziness. But I pray that we would see you enable everything you command and you call us 
to respond to your truth and to actively make choices within this life. It's in Jesus' name.